welcome to a special episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast presented by me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. After a shorter wait than many, including the President of the Supreme Court expected, we have a decision in the Scottish Referendum Bill case, and so I am covering it on the pod outside of the usual Monday slot to try and offer a bit more timeliness. Anyone who has been following the news will likely be aware of the case and the result, which did not go the way that many who advocate for Scottish independence had hoped. Here we will have a discussion of the judgment and get into some of the legal and political implications. It is easy to forget that the Scottish Parliament is a creature of the Westminster Parliament. Holyrood operates out of Edinburgh in an independent fashion, and the SNP are able to enact policy on a broad range of subjects without the Conservatives having any input outside of the contributions of their own MSPs. That is as it should be, but ultimately the Scottish Parliament only exists by virtue of the Scotland Act 1998 passed by a Labour government in Westminster. In theory, if that Act was repealed, Holyrood would simply cease to have any power whatsoever. This is relevant here because under the Scotland Act, the power of the Scottish Parliament to enact legislation is limited. A provision of a bill will not be lawful if it relates to a matter reserved for the Parliament in Westminster. Specifically in this context, the reserved matters include, quote, the Union of the Kingdoms of Scotland and England, end quote, and, quote, the Parliament of the United Kingdom, end quote, under Schedule 5, Paragraphs 1b and c, respectively. With that in mind, it is easy to see why the Scottish Independence Referendum Bill which seeks to ask the people of Scotland whether it should be an independent country, might trip over those reserved matters. In response, the Lord Advocate noted that such a referendum would only be advisory, so it would not directly affect the Union. From a legal perspective, an interesting part of this case was whether the court should actually accept the reference at all. For a start, it was questioned whether this was a devolution issue, because if it were found not to be, then the Supreme Court would not have jurisdiction to provide an answer. However, even if it was held to be a devolution issue, part of the debate was whether the court should nevertheless exercise its discretion and decline to accept the reference. This was a point that the Westminster government pushed hard on. Finally, if the court did accept the reference, then it would be up to the justices to decide the substantive question i.e. is the provision of the bill that allows for a referendum within the competence of the Scottish Parliament. It is with those issues on their plate that the justices got to work. On the first question, a devolution issue is defined in Schedule 6, Paragraph 1F, as including, quote, any other question arising by virtue of this Act about reserved matters, end quote. The justices concluded in their unanimous judgment that this reference fits that description. There were four reasons given as the basis for that conclusion. Firstly, the MSP who introduces the bill must declare that they believe it to be within the competence of the Scottish Parliament. Secondly, the separate method for legal scrutiny of a bill does not preclude a reference about a proposed bill before it is introduced. Thirdly, the wording in paragraph 1f is deliberately wide to allow for references on a range of issues that touch on devolution 
and the reserved matters. Fourth, and finally, from a rule of law perspective, it makes sense to allow for the Lord Advocate to obtain an authoritative judicial decision about the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament before a bill is introduced. The next question, as a reminder, was that even if it was held that this was a devolution issue, should the Supreme Court nevertheless just decline to accept the reference? This might seem an odd argument, because if the question is before them, why would they simply choose not to provide an answer? However, it was suggested that this is really a hypothetical question for the time being, because this bill is not close to becoming law. At the very least, it would be premature to answer the question right now. If the Supreme Court got into the habit of answering hypothetical questions, then it could open the floodgates to references for all sorts of proposals in the future. However, the justices rejected this suggestion. The question is not hypothetical because there is a very real bill that is being prepared for introduction to the Scottish Parliament. How the court answers that question will have an impact because it will affect whether the bill does in fact get introduced. This then brings us to the final substantive question. Would the bill be outside of the legislative competence of Holyrood? For the justices, a legislative proposal will relate to a reserved matter if it has more than a loose or consequential connection with it. Meanwhile, the purpose and effect of a given proposal must be understood in the light of the aims of those bringing it forward, and what the objective result will be if the proposal is brought into law. Interestingly, the Supreme Court noted that the effect in this context is not necessarily limited to the legal consequences. Here, the purpose of the bill is to hold a referendum about whether the union between England and Scotland should be dissolved. That is clearly touching on the reserved matters that we talked about earlier. However, even if the result of such a referendum would itself have no legal consequences or affect the status of the union, the court was cognizant of the political ramifications of such a vote. It is those consequences that mean there is more than a loose or consequential connection with the reserved matters, and so the bill must be outside of the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. Before we move on to some analysis of this case, it is also important to say that the Scottish National Party intervened in these proceedings and provided arguments based on the right to self-determination under international law, as well as the principle of legality in domestic law. These arguments were rejected by the justices. The idea of self-determination was rejected on the basis of how the Canadian Supreme Court dealt with a similar situation in respect of Quebec, and the principle of legality was not impinged by the allocation of power between the UK and Scotland under the Scotland Act. There is a lot to digest there in that judgment, and uh, legal scholars will be taking apart the judgment for weeks and months to come, but uh, let's try and provide some immediate insight. I mentioned in my newsletter this morning that I think an important part of this decision was that it was a unanimous judgment handed down by Lord Reid. When it comes to questions around Scottish independence, it often feels like it is a small number of English people in London making decisions on behalf of the people of Scotland. In some sense that is also true here, with the Supreme Court being based in London and the majority of the panel being English. But Lord Reid, the President, is a Scot, and the unanimous decision handed down after only a short period of deliberation 
suggests that the court is confident that it has got the law right. So far as that goes, I also tend to agree that this is the correct legal decision as well. The question of a referendum clearly touches on the reserved issue of the Union, but there was some confusion about whether the Supreme Court should consider the political consequences of such a vote as they did. The popular economic justice campaigner Richard Murphy wrote on Twitter that, quote, Legally, the Supreme Court agreed that a referendum could be held. Politically, they deny it. Shocking. End quote. And that is just not accurate whatsoever, and exposes the problem of how misunderstandings of judgments can proliferate in high-profile cases. The legal decision is that a referendum cannot be held, because regard must also be had to the political consequences. Separating those two, as Murphy did, is simply wrong and irresponsible. This is a shame because the Supreme Court goes to a lot of effort to simplify complex legal decisions for the layperson, whether that is by broadcasting the handing down of the judgment, providing summaries, or even limiting the actual judgment in this case to 34 pages. If the decision is to be picked at, then I think more needs to be said about the international element and the principle of self-determination raised by the Scottish National Party. The Quebec case that was mentioned um, was actually cited by the justices as saying, quote, In summary, the international law right to self-determination only generates, at best, a right to external self-determination in situations of former colonies, where a people is oppressed, as for example under foreign military occupation, or where a definable group is denied meaningful access to government to pursue their political, economic, social and cultural development. In all three situations, the people in question are entitled to a right to external self-determination because they have been denied the ability to exert internally their right to self-determination. Such exceptional circumstances are manifestly inapplicable to Quebec under existing conditions. End quote. It's that third point that is interesting to me. The Scottish people are a definable group, but are they allowed to pursue their political, economic, social and cultural development in a meaningful way? It could be argued that the restrictions contained in the Scotland Act mean they are not, but the question is what does meaningful mean in this context? It probably makes sense to give a relatively strict interpretation so that the principle is not abused, and the situation in Quebec is somewhat comparable to Scotland, so following that authority makes sense, but I don't know if it is as open and shut as the Supreme Court made it seem. Legally then, it is the correct decision, but that will not stop the political clamour in Scotland for IndyRef 2. The decision will be hard to swallow, and rallies took place in Scotland to show support for the idea. The judgment notes that a referendum would potentially undermine the democratic legitimacy of the Union, but that points to a logical flaw at the heart of the argument. How does the direct democracy of a referendum undermine any other form of democracy? Another referendum is off the table for the time being, but the question now is surely when, rather than if, IndyRef 2 will take place. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. As a reminder before we go, if you would like to support the podcast, help to keep it ad-free, then do subscribe to the newsletter. It's uklawweekly.substack.com, and you can find all of the odd stuff there and get loads of information directly to your inbox. 
When you sign up for the paid version of it, you also get a free ebook on how to answer essay questions on a law degree. And there's a bonus if you sign up for the free version as well. As I say, this morning covered the Supreme Court case probably within half an hour of the judgment being read out. There was already an email with some immediate thoughts and analysis ready to go. Uh, And so if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in, if you think it would be useful, then do subscribe to that because it does really help the podcast and they all help each other. So um, I'll be back with another episode in the future. This is the latest Supreme Court case for now, so not quite sure when the next episode will be. Um, But until then, bye!